announcements. First announcement I have is next week, obviously, we're having our annual general meeting where we'll be electing the council. Please come along. We're at 5.30 in this room. It'll be a long, arduous process, but at the end of it, we'll have a new council and they'll hopefully be really, really nice people. Depending on how the vote goes. Yeah, so I to ask, can somebody open the window and have some more windows? Because this vote I don't have anything that doesn't keep me that true. Uh, yeah, um, the only other thing to say is. Right, come on in there, Lord. They're getting a Opposition was the main speaker and Lawsock President, Ms. Sasha Connell. 
She labels capital punishment, but being totally void of all sense of morality, legality, and certainty, the three things one must consider when pressing sentence. She criticized the idea of punishing Kelly with Kelly as being morally bankrupt, going on to claim that capital punishment would be wholly inconsistent with all other forms of legal sanction. She concluded by asking that if we want to live in a world where one may be killed, the court deems that we have not been sufficiently sorry for one's crimes. Continuing the case of the proposition was Ms. Schroeder who claimed that since its revocation, a lack of capital punishment in the UK has led to unlawful killings doubling since 1968. She dismissed the argument of wrongful, wrongful convictions, stating that forensics have vastly improved since those times, and we can now be more certain in our decisions. She concluded that a reintroduction of capital punishment wouldn't be going against international law and would be easily implemented. Speaking exactly with the opposition was Mr. Shea Basco, who asserted that the proposition was stating correlation as causation. He channeled Batman, stating that uh, if we kill a killer, the number of killers in the world remains the same. He stated that any reintroduction of this barbaric practice would put off potential lawyers before asking where we draw the line on which crimes need to be punished in such a fashion. Concluding for the proposition was Mr. Hugh Donovan. He once again stressed that we weren't reintroducing a bygone system, it would be a dynamic new system of capital punishment for the 21st century. He claimed that the deterrent of the death penalty, the risk of reoffending increases dramatically, and that society was more deadly without us. He labelled whole life towers as being more inhumane than capital punishment before concluding that the proposition are the only moral side in this debate. Concluding the opposition, so the debate was made speaker, Mr. Matthew Yardin, who aptly enough looked at his speech with two literary greats who were opposed to capital punishment, Oscar Wilde and Albert Camus. He labelled the death penalty as being aggressive, backtracking, and immoral, knowing that as much as 4.1% of those currently on death row in the United States are innocent. He asked the proposition what was an acceptable number for innocent deaths for them, noting that if it was only higher than zero, then they couldn't possibly claim the moral authority on this debate. Questions were heard from Robert Clark, Lauren O'Neill, Craig Miller, Matt Wilkinson, Jerry Cargill, and Calvin Black. A vote based on House opinion was taken before the debate, which read three eyes, 28 nays, and seven abstentions. Meanwhile, a casting vote was taken, which read seven eyes, 18 nays, and 10 abstentions. My 10 minutes is right. Uh, moving swiftly on to private funders with us, is there any debates they'd like to start? Uh, yes, Ms. Um, I would like to propose to this house that we open more to windows because I'm really hot. There are really only hot. so many windows we can open, I think, uh, unless it's one behind that curtain. No, it's open. <laughs> Some of them are admittedly well and shot, apparently, so um, anyone have any, any more pressing values they tend to do? Uh, Yes, absolutely. All the time. <laughs> um, well, I would just like for all of us here to send the best of luck to Matthew Solomon, Matthew Bradley, and Shredder Kerr, who will be representing the Literific Athenians competition in court tomorrow. On that note, I'd like to wish again uh, good luck to David Davis, Theresa May, and all the rest. Selling us up Swanee River. <laughs> Should be celebrated. 
I'm not hung from the yardarm. That's the only treatment that I have for these Brexit traitors. We put it to the house. <laughs> Did anyone read the letter back from the EU to us, which basically stated... Red and blood. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, if anyone saw it, did they see the bit that said we can stop the Article 50 process at any point, <laughs> and as long as we're not trying to use these two years to get a better deal with the current EU, we can pull the plug and maintain our status in the EU. Does anyone not think that's the key point of this entire negotiation process, that we, as the general public of the United Kingdom, should be demanding a referendum, and I say this, post-agreement, because that basically means we can either stay in or a leave knowing the actual answer, which is what we should have had at the beginning. Mm -hmm. What's that? It's not a demo. It's a complete demo. But do you not think we should be? Now that you know that, it's not putting out anyone's hands behind their back, and it is actually doing the correct thing democratically for the entire United Kingdom. And that's the motion I'd like to be put, putting forward tonight. Not the good luck, which they should be, we know that. Not the horrible people, but surely even you want to know what we could get and could no. be at. <laughs> I don't care. There's absolutely no harm in putting that question to the people. None at all. Just, uh, I completely agree with you on the premise that you talked about. The other side as well is it's not a unilateral withdrawal of the notification. It would need to be agreed by the EU27, which itself poses more of a problem than just a simple referendum. Actually, the people don't want to break that state. Mr. Bolton? Actually, it's surprising to the EU does time and time again when they don't get the they don't get the answer they like, which is well, just put it down another road. People don't believe the EU. That's just leave. We don't need another referendum. Frankly, I can't be bothered. Don't want to do that. So yeah, no need. Uh, can anyone else be bothered? So, well, I'm much as. I've come around to the idea that referendums are horrible and we should never have one again. <laughs> I think it might be reasonable in this case to have another one, given that with this one, both sides would actually have the facts there and we'd be going, maybe this will happen, no, maybe this will happen. There would be no maybe. Mr. Yeah, it's, it's always interesting when you come back and see that people are misinformed about the results of the referendum. This is a debate that's been going on pretty much since Maastricht. It had been in the public discourse, and facts have been floating around for those that you know did get informed. And um, the problem of having a second referendum is that withdrawals the option of us just going under WTO rules which is one which the UK has considered. It's not an ideal one, but it's one which can kind of keep the EU to the fire and give us some negotiation. If the EU knew if we'd go back without a deal to another vote, they'd probably just rise off. So given we express that sentiment, would you say that there would need to be another referendum or a vote in Parliament? I'd say a vote in Parliament. Yeah. The referendum would withdrew, withdraw all the withdraw all the negotiations that are already been made in another 
But that's you not, just, not the point I'm putting across at all here. Because I'm saying we stay in as is, or we have the negotiation we win, we get out of it. Now, the point that Morgan's made is that they can't do that if it hasn't been seen that we are trying to further our position in the EU. That's the kicker there. We can't, we can be going, we don't want to be in the EU, we want to have X, Y, and Z, but we don't, if we do stay in, we don't want to basically use that as a stick to beat you with. That's what that line was about, is the stick to beat the EU with, to get to a better place, i.e. further rebate or X, Y, or Z. So that's the issue there. If we don't go in with, we go in with good faith, and we're like, we do want to come out, this is the deal, and we're going to flip to the people. And I know what you're saying about the EU, if they don't get their own way, then they just have another vote. But I think that when you say facts, it's such, that term is just not correct here. Because there were none. Now, I'm voting out, and I will stay voting out, literally, with, even if I never have to speak to Europe ever again, I will always vote leave. Right? So it makes no difference to me what the referendum is, but there was plenty of people in the UK that voted based on £350 million to the, to the LHS. They did. People voted for a few different reasons here. One, people don't like foreigners. Okay? Two, people wanted more money in the NHS. And there are people like me and Harry who voted for our particular reasons to do with global trade and opening up markets. Right? And I'm sure there's a few others in here I've not spoken to, I think John's one of them as well. Right? So unless you actually put down, this is what's going to happen, versus this is what we've got, you don't get an actual referendum based on facts, which we haven't had right now. I think we've had enough points on that. Uh, I think, I'm not really sure if we should vote on the motion on that, because I think the whole point of it was to just engender discussion as a work. So with that, I think we'll take one more very quick, and we'll probably turn to some of the questions. Uh, no, not yet, anybody. Uh, what are the House's thoughts on a recent particular article by the Daily Mail about Nicholas Sturgeon and Theresa May? And does this House believe that number 10 should in fact condemn this article? And uh, for anyone who doesn't know what the article was, they showed like a picture of Nicholas Sturgeon and Theresa May showing their legs and they're like, forget about Brexit, who won legs it? Uh, and everyone thought it was terrible. But you have far too many opinions for your own good. <laughs> Everybody thought the article was terrible because it was terrible. I mean, I saw it online and assumed it was someone like making a parody of the Daily Mail. And like took comments and I thought, oh, this would be good for a laugh. And then it wasn't good for a laugh at all. It was good for a little cry though. It was really good. Like, it was good for a little cry. Like, it, it's, it's so ridiculous, and it's not, realistically, it's not worth anyone's time, it's not worth anybody paying attention to it. But the fact that this, the fact that this headline and that picture made it past several people, <laughs> I'm ignoring what's going on, as, a, as always, I'm ignoring what's going on. But yeah, the fact that that, the fact that, that headline and article made it past so many people is so very worrying. Like. I don't know why anyone thought it was a good idea or how they actually thought people would respond, but it's, I mean, it's, it's lazy, it's sexist, and it's just bad journalism generally, I think, so. Uh, Mr. Uh, Following up on what we just said, is anyone in this room surprised by the trash journalism that the Daily Mail produces? It's no surprise whatsoever. 
you said which terrible art when you said the terrible art I was wondering which. <laughs> <laughs> That's happy that Fox News wrong. Fox News. No, we're just going to move on. So now we're going to have the president. Presence for the questions. Questions for me, the president. Anything remotely interesting? Is this going to be something new? Interesting. Uh, it's interesting to me. <laughs> I am personally interested. That makes sounds really creepy. <laughs> sure, why not? Mr. President, what was your breakfast oh, this morning? Uh, I actually had like a little bit of white pudding left over from the weekend. So, <laughs> white pudding. White pudding. Okay. Sentimental, I'm going to make, uh, tell you a little bit about me. 
Uh, I was born and educated in an area of Greater Manchester called Trafford. It's quite an affluent area and is the only borough council in Greater Manchester which has a conservative controlled council, unfortunately. <laughs> As a result, Trafford is one of the only areas in England which still maintains the 11 plus exam, still has grammar schools and still segregates secondary education uh, based on ability. <coughs> now, when I took my 11 plus at, uh, just two weeks after my 10th birthday, I was lucky enough to pass but opted instead to go to uh, a high school. And here I am today, standing here with all of you, having gone to a high school. It's not made any difference, I'm still in a top university. On that point, sir. Yes. Oxford and Cambridge are a top university. Queen's is decidedly middle of the road. at the age of 10 or 11 uh, puts children through a vigorous examination process which decides whether they are a success or a failure. It decides whether they can push themselves to become leaders in different academic and professional fields or whether they should feel they should just accept that they, because they haven't gone to a good school they can't aspire to achieve. Now, I'm sure a lot of you listen to, these, listen to me thinking that's a bit of a wishy-washy argument but one example of this um, has been uh, put forward by the University of London in uh, a paper titled Ability Grouping in Secondary School, in Secondary School the Effects on Academic Achievement and Pupils' Self-Esteem. This, this, uh, these academics argue that pupils' self-concept is influenced by the type of school um, with overall a more positive effect on the self-concept of mixed ability schools. The psychological effect of failing this examination has on young people really does show the need to abolish grammar schools and the need to give all students an equal footing on education. I'm going to make some progress for The second argument is that the segregation is an elitist principle which does nothing for social mobility. It segregates students into different schools and makes young people think that they are different from one another based on their ability, how much money their parents have, or what area they are educated at primary school level. As a, result, as a result, this means grammar schools do nothing to help social mobility and there are plenty of evidence to support this. Research conducted by Sutton Trust showed that only 3%, only 3 of grammar school students in this area are entitled to free school meals, while non -grammar school, um, students in non-grammar schools in the same area, the number was 18%. Furthermore, the Institute of Physical Studies has found that, and I quote, amongst high achievers, those who are eligible for free school meals or who live in poorer neighbourhoods are significantly less likely to go to a grammar school. This shows the elitist nature of grammar schools in stopping the poorest students from getting the best education and educating everyone equally, eventually hindering their ability to move out of poverty. No. Finally, Let's be clear what the proposition are arguing today. <coughs> Segregation based on ability is a sign of a failed education system. I say two examples of the effects of this failed education system. The psychological effect on young people and the effect on social mobility. Schools should share their ability to educate everyone, regardless of ability, regardless of acute learning disabilities, regardless of whatever background the child comes from. If an education system is really succeeded in its ability to educate our next generation to the best of their ability, they will not need to 
to segregate. Finland is a prime example of this, where there is no form of segregation on ability, not even within schools. Every child is educated together, and Finland has one of the best performing education systems in Europe. This is something which will be argued further by the proposition later. So, to conclude, I ask the House this evening to join the proposition in calling for the abolition of grammar schools. This is not a debate on stopping the most able from achieving. This is a debate on stopping the failed education system from forgetting those at the bottom. This deeply flawed system, which is opposed by cross-party support in the House of Commons, causes serious psychological effects on students who do not make it into grammar schools. Not only this, <coughs> grammar schools do nothing for social mobility and are elitist institutions which segregate the less able from the highest achievers while in no way helping social mobility. I ask the House to support the motion. Best place suited for us. 
Not uh, no, having grammar schools does not mean that grammar schools should be the only kind of opportunity for education funded. Different skills require different schooling. Now for part two, you don't always get what you want. Um, I know you said you didn't want to close schools, but like, how are you going to abolish grammar schools without closing schools? I'm not playing. I know. Um, <laughs> abolishing grammar schools can have results you don't want. Uh, what's to say that straight up abolishing grammar schools won't just make it worse? Uh, look at what happened with the 11 class in Northern Ireland. Okay, the 11 class was just abolished without anything to replace it or any indications of another way to go. And what did it do? It just made the whole system more unregulated. Um, I was the last year to do the 11 class in Northern Ireland. I took two tests in my own school, surrounded by my friends. One of them, which was pretty sure um, they were copying off me actually, um, but you know what, never mind that. Um, children nowadays, they have to go take tests in the school they're applying to, I'm pretty sure, in schools they don't know, surrounded by people they don't know. No, no, the whole process, the process, it's just way more stressful and difficult. Abolishing a land class didn't make it go away in Northern Ireland. Everyone still just did it anyway. So, about, no, abolishing grammar schools won't make them go away either. Um, the argument for abolishing grammar schools is that it's discriminatory because children from better off families can pay for a private tutoring so they get into grammar schools. So it's a lie. Okay, um, can everybody here who went to grammar school put their hand up? Um, for the recording, I'll say that it's almost everyone. Um, put your hands down. I, I don't like the picture. Um, I can everyone had private tutoring so they passed 11 plus put their hands up. It's a few scattered people for the recording and um, that kind of just proves my point there. Um, let's look at English. Uh, I'm going to be probably really wrong about this year, English. Um, <laughs> I might probably going to be inaccurate. Uh, they abolished grammar schools like 40 years ago or so. Now I look at who the lights mostly are. People from public schools, which confusingly enough means that they were all privately educated. Um, at least here with grammar schools, you don't have to pay, pay extortionate fees to go to grammar school. No, abolishing grammar schools might just have the same effect here, where grammar schools are converted into independent schools, which you have to pay for. Then children from parents who aren't stupidly rich will not be able to go to grammar schools. And that is, no, that is worsening the inequality, doesn't it? Let's get rid of it. Um, and here's another issue. <sighs> Even if you abolish grammar schools, it doesn't mean that any child from any background can go to any school. Because here in Northern Ireland, uh, we have another divide in our education, educational system, and that is sectarianism. On that point? No, I appreciate the Star Wars. Um, if you want to make our educational system fair, maybe start by proposing that all schools should be integrated schools. But that's another debate, and it's not really one I want to get into. It's just food for thoughts that academic and educational system is much more complicated than it might seem. Uh, just straight up abolishing something maybe just doesn't give you the results you want. Oh, I'm super ill, guys. Like, I shouldn't be here. Um, I'm not really sure if my speech made sense or not, but the underlying basic point is sometimes if even doing something sounds like a good idea, it might have been a whole can of worms that you never even thought about that just makes everything worse. 
So don't abolish grammar schools. I do good night. Contain the case for composition, Mr. Peter Dell. Chair, members of the House, and esteemed divisions, it's my pleasure to be speaking with a terrific to all this evening. But I think it's an increasingly important debate, especially in Wheeling, Northern Ireland. So, to start with a bit of rebuttal, you said that university isn't the place for everyone, which is fair enough. But I strongly believe, and so does our side, that everybody should have the chance to aspire to go to university. And this shouldn't be decided at 11, it shouldn't be decided at 12, and it shouldn't be decided at 14. Because everybody, whatever age, should have the chance to succeed. And that's what we're doing. Um, a two-tier system, on principle, rejects this idea. Okay. Now, I want to take us back to our internal meeting, where we first decided this debate. Um, and this is where um, we discussed all the different um, debates to the table. Someone raised the question when discussing the motion of who really cares about grammar schools. Anyway, I thus proceeded to get a map up and said, well, those who are disadvantaged by a test at whatever age and consequently received a possibly inferior but certainly less academically minded education. The irony of a private school boy making an issue regarding educational equality was certainly not lost on the roof. And I haven't always believed grammar schools are necessarily a bad thing. But this is why I wanted to speak tonight. To persuade you, as I was persuaded, that the grammar school system is fundamentally unfair, outdated, and therefore it's imperative that they are abolished. So when I first arrived in Northern Ireland, I was greeted by a close family friend who lived her all her life. And after complaining about Stormont and the political situation, and Northern Irish pride started to rise. Um, and she said not only does it have an exceptional love of flags or flags and doors of pride, and she also argued that Northern Ireland had a better education system than England. That was a bit like, what's going on? Um, and the results, admittedly, as I'm sure like, the opposition will delve into, are better. However, I would like to put forward that it is generally recognised that such an introduction to grammar schools in England and keeping the grammar schools in Northern Ireland does not increase education attainment or social mobility and leads to an un increase in unfairness in our education system. The grammar school system is brutal, okay? There is no two ways about it. This is a binary and incredibly outdated system that reinforces our class structures. Defenders of the system, and Kira pointed this out, um, will argue that there are two types of students. Those who will succeed academically, and those who are more suited to vocational work. And then this is decided at whatever age. Sounds fair, am I right? This too is an incredibly binary look at the capability of the individual. Admittance to a grammar school has much to do with social class as it does with raw academic ability, as I'm going to go into. And although those who make the decision and um, <laughs> those that who make the decision, and that is the crucial word there, decision to prove to pursue a more vocational path should be encouraged to do so. But they shouldn't be forced into a different path that they might not eventually lead into at such a young age. But on another point, the psychological ramifications 
of telling a child at the age of 11, which is the case in Northern Ireland, that you are not academic is fundamentally wrong. There are no two ways about it. To give a personal example of the matter, a close friend of mine never excelled exceptionally at GCSE. He did alright, but he was a mixture of being seats. When he got to Ireland, he became incredibly passionate and inspired by some amazing teachers in my school, and subsequently gained three A stars and was admitted to Oxford. I'm sure similar cases have occasionally happened in comprehensive schools, but from the proposition argument, you are arguing that they, they do. And if you don't aspire to go to university, you shouldn't be in a comprehensive school. And that was the thrust of your argument. On that problem, yeah. Well, I mean, with education systems, you're always dealing with bell curves. You know, it's a, the probability of people achieving either very high or very low on um, the like, grade point averages. But whenever you're dealing with a class which has to match the academic ability of the people in it, you're either going to hold people behind or other people are going to be very hard to catch up. Okay, okay, so you say that. And you say that it will hold people behind this holistic um, image of education that we're propagating. But it doesn't. As the first proposition outlined, in Finland, there is no section, there is no structure, and that is generally regarded as one of the best education systems in the world. Okay. Um, the system is set up based on putting students into certain, in a certain category, rather than working with all students, whatever ability, and always giving them a to succeed. I'd like to pose to this house, but it is never too late to learn, to exceed and to do well, and I hope you would agree. The idea and concept behind grammar schools contradicts this idea. Wealthiest parents often pay for tutoring, as um, you quite clearly showed. And to reinforce and mention the statistics that um, my colleagues already pointed out, 18% is the amount of people that have free school meals in grammar schools. And just to make it clear, this is based on um, the wage of and the parents, that gives a massive indication to the social class of people that go to grammar school. And I think it's a very important point that we have made. Okay, I need to wrap up quickly. Okay, so a quick on um, how this is reinforced by policy experts, teachers, and professors. Stephen Gardner, the president of education at the University of Durham, says that any policymaker who cares about educational effectiveness, as I hope you all do, so I or or social justice should not condone or condone section viability. And he's certainly not alone in pronouncing this opinion. The Educational Policy Institute, which is an impartial body to increase social mobility and equality, stated in their official policy review that we can find no evidence, no evidence, to suggest that educational standards in England will be improved by creating additional grammar schools. Teaching unions also rejected. So let's for once listen to the experts, listen to the teachers, listen to the policymakers, and not continue this outdated and unfair system. We, at the proposition, is advocating a system based on fairness and opportunity for all. A system seen in Finland where there is no streaming, no setting, and certainly no grammar schools. This debate is a reflection of what you want society to be a two tier, a two -tier system with many religious, and then we just put it out there, but anyone want a healthcare? system in a two-tier method. I don't think it was. So to create the trap up, I implore you to vote for the proposition this evening. And next up for the opposition, Mr. Patrick.
The uh, first gentleman on my right here has uh, hinted that uh, grammar schools are a reflection on a failed education system, and then went on to, to insist that he has successfully traversed his way through the education system and progressed to university with much success. I congratulate him on that, but I would just like to raise the contradiction that he has created with that point. Furthermore, uh, both the first and second gentleman on my right uh, put some heavy emphasis on the self-esteem of young people coming through our education system and how it's greatly damaged by selective education. The words brutal were thrown around and uh, psychological ramifications. I would just like to underline the fact that life is brutal and it's full of, full of opportunity. Full of opportunities where you're going to be part of the decision-making process, you're going to be selected, it's going to be discriminated. And I would just like to say that we need to raise our young people through a system where they are prepared for these sort of eventualities. I'm not <laughs> Not yet, thanks. Now, I would uh, like to begin by making the bold assumption that all present have the best interests of our young people at heart. <laughs> it's with this in mind that we can. <laughs> well. <laughs> With this in mind that we can't help but oppose the motion. Selective education consistently upholds the best interests of all students by embracing diversity, distinction, and merit. What the members opposite are advocating is a conglomerative and assimilative, one-size-fits-all system which will marginalize and penalize students whose skills and needs don't conform to a narrow-minded majority interpretation. <laughs> it, is the no, thank you. it is the primary focus of our education system to further the talents and abilities of all our youth. Uh, Kira has, uh, has alluded to this earlier. I refuse to believe that the transfer test assesses intelligence. Its purpose is to provide an insight into an individual's verbal and numerical reasoning skills. In a nutshell, it susses out how students approach a problem when they are faced with one and directs them towards a school which embraces a style and pace of learning with which they can connect. Students who score highly in the transfer test can apply themselves to study at a grammar school or comprehensive school of their choice. <coughs> Students who score poorly in the test demonstrate weaker logical reasoning skills. It is therefore appropriate that they choose between studying, contrary to common belief, both practical and classical academic <coughs> disciplines in a comprehensive school where their different needs can be specifically targeted and catered for. On that point? Yeah, okay. But I believe it was the MP that said that. please. <laughs> what much of Peter's argument hinged upon was the fact that 10 or 11 years old is simply too early to feasibly say that from this we can say what someone's logical reasoning ability is going to be for the rest of their life. This is not information which people learn. This is in people's mindset. This is how people think about problems, and it's a psychological thing. And you've got to draw a line about where you can, uh, where you can say someone has developed this ability. And you can, it, it is a bell curve. You can pick a certain age, and there will always be people who haven't developed yet. And it's better for the majority, the vast overwhelming majority, that we pick the age eleven. Back to my thing. Under the current selective education model, all students with hard work are able to get the best out of school. Without targeted selective education, we are misappropriating the trust placed in us by parents and pupils to deliver the best possible education. On a different note, grammar schools have played and continue to play a vital role 
in the course of social mobility, contrary to what uh, the gentleman on my right have told you. The transfer test is our eternal safeguard against unfair proxy selection, which will emerge in its absence in the form of extortionate school fees and inflated house prices in the catchment areas of reputedly good schools. And that's why I'm no, thank you. When we do not judge by merit, free market alternatives will develop, and this will worsen class contrast, not improve it. I do not want to see a situation where only those fortunate enough to be able to afford the best education can have the best education. This is what the proposition, abolishing grammar schools, will lead us into. As well as with respect to socio-economic mobility, grammar schools have shown themselves to consistently transcend many other common divisions in society. Only 12% of selective schools identify with a religion. This contrasts with nearly 20% of comprehensives. Grammar schools also maintain a significantly higher proportion of non-white students and students who speak a first language other than English in comparison with all other forms of secondary education. I attribute this resounding progress to our strong and transparent 11 plus system, which eliminates all possibilities for other forms of discrimination, not based upon merit, but for example, based upon race and religion. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not be tempted to toy with something as fundamentally important as our children's education for the sake of cheap idealism. When we scratch beneath the surface, it is undeniably evident, and I hope I have shown that the course of mor and I hope I've uh, I beg your pardons. <laughs> On that point. It is undeniably evident, <laughs> and I hope I have shown that the course of morality, the course of practicality, and the course of fairness decisively necessitate the maintenance of our selective education grammar school system. It is therefore that I ask and confidently expect all members of the House to oppose the motion. Thank you. I've got a lot to cover here, but I'm going to start with discussing what I believe everybody in this house's idealism actually is. Okay, that we want the best education system that there is. I don't think anybody in this room can tell me something different. There's an there's a part two to that which says we do want it to be fair as well. So we want the best and fairest education system. This side of the house is trying to say that the, only, the best form is segregation. What we're trying to put forward here is the Finland model, as it stands right now. So where are we? If you take the current education rankings, which I'm surprised hasn't been brought up yet by uh, either side right now, but Finland's ranked number five in the world, we're ranked number 20. And all of our individual components, science, maths, and English, are below that. Okay, so we're ranking between 20 and 30 for the three things that are judged. I call that a failure. Some, there might be some success stories, but like you've stated, this is on a bell curve. Okay, so when we discuss failure, we're discussing the country as a whole, the current education system as a whole. Let's talk about the first point here, which is 11. Now, has anyone in this room ever thought about why it's 11, the 11 plus? Has anyone got any theories? Because I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from Piaget's models. If anyone has studied psychology in this room, they'll know what I'm talking about. 
Okay, he basically says between the age of 11 and 12, you reach the stage of formal operation. Okay, basically that means you start being able to have abstract thought. And it's that abstract thought that we are testing for in the 11 plus historically. Now, it starts at 11. Starts at 11. So to have a system where we're going to wipe out the people that aren't where they should be at the start of the process, it's basically like saying if you can't walk at six months, you need to go to live in hospital. <laughs> it's what it's saying. It's the same thing. I know it sounds ludicrous, but people start walking at six months. People start abstract thought at 11 years. So if we stop wiping people off at 11 years of age, we're doing the same thing as sending those six-month-old babies into a hospital because they can't walk. It's absolutely ludicrous. The second thing that they've talked about is resilience. Now, the General Medical Council have done a hell of a lot of research on this because they don't think that medical students are resilient enough. And what they basically have this sort of paradigm is paediatric innocence versus resilience. Okay, and they basically are contradictory to each other. And they've basically stated that the time to start teaching resilience is from 18. Okay, so that's the GMC. They're the people who are trained to look at evidence, say it's 18 is the age to start building resilience into individuals, not before that. I think that's hit, no, that's hit their points on the head there. Now, I'm going to do something that's different to this side so far. I'm going to start trying to talk about evidence and not anecdotal pieces that we've experienced in our lives. So first thing I'm going to bash Tony Blair. <laughs> Where Tony Blair went wrong is he got rid of an okay education system. And I'll give you that. Grammar schools are okay. They've got the fundamental issues that we've talked about, such as they do impinge those in the lower social economic groupings, which we'll, which we'll go into a bit more detail on, but it's okay. What he did is he went from okay to absolutely terrible. He went back 20 years. What he should have done is he should have looked around the world and seen, oh, they have a really good system. Let's do everything we can to mimic their system. That would have been progress. No, that would have been progress not going backwards. Okay, so study number one. If you have siblings that sit around the table and learn with each other of different ages versus siblings that don't do exactly the same thing, who do you think has better educational achievement? Those that the older siblings teach the younger siblings, and then the younger siblings basically get spoon-fed from the older ones. The older ones waste their time teaching, but have got to really understand the topics, or the ones that just sit in their bedroom learning by themselves. The answer are siblings who learn together. Okay? It's true. The evidence shows it. Basically, that's my first reason why any form of segregation doesn't work. Peace on board. Let me finish. Piece number two. As we've talked about right now, I've, we've battered on about the finish system. I'm going to go into a tiny bit more detail and I'll take your point. Okay. The key thing is in Finland is they have small class sizes. 20 people. They are there, they are purposely put from academic to not so academic next to each other for exactly the same reason as the sibling studies, that when somebody who is seen as more intelligent teaches somebody, they learn to 
that subject matters deeper themselves, and the ones that aren't as intelligent get fed, fed at their level. So the evidence is there two ways. The segregation doesn't work. Now I know that there probably needs to be an end cutoff point in terms of IQ. And I'm not disputing that, but we know that from a very early age. We know that people that have got learning difficulties, and we are not proposing that people with learning difficulties are in mainstream education. That's a completely different debate, and no one has suggested that. So this is people with not learning difficulties should be in the same classroom. Go on. Um, I think we're at the rate of the spoon feeding or teaching each other. Uh, it's a bit incongruous because the education system relies a lot on resources and teaching. Okay, thanks. Okay, perfect. So what we're basically getting down to right now, based on your point, is we don't allocate our education system enough resources. The teachers that are going to be in this room will tell you that when they go into the system. We're trying to cut funding. There need to be more teachers, better trained teachers that have trained for longer. Okay, with more pay and smaller class sizes, not more segregation. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to go and basically double down on a failed model of not putting enough money into a system, and you'll never hear a Tory saying, I want to spend more money and I want to borrow more money. It's not what we want to do. This is one of the things. We spend in the UK £40 billion a year on education. 40 billion quid. That's less than any other department apart from transport, which is 20 billion pounds. We spend 150 billion pounds on the NHS. We spend 240 billion pounds on benefits and pensions. It's absolutely shocking what we put into the education system, and so if we don't put enough system in that we're doubling down on bad. Oh, okay, as I said originally. Okay, so I'm running out of time here, and I do apologise. But I just wanted to briefly touch on early learning experiences. Do. I'm really sorry. I urge you to vote for this side of the house. There's a real important thing on early learning experience which I've not had time to go into. Basically, and that says that unless we engage <laughs> <laughs> in those early years from two upwards, the game is lost by the time that the children are five to seven years of age. I urge you to vote against Mr. Mr. Chair and members of the House, there are three things I want to talk about tonight. The first is uh, increased choice of schools, the second is the problem of abolition, and third is the key point this debate hangs on, which is social mobility and education. Um, before I begin, though, I want to go into a little bit of rebuttal. Uh, first of all, nothing we've said so far uh, should give you the impression that those that attend state schools cannot go on to university. Nothing we have said on this side of the house suggests that, and I want to nip that in the bud. Um, people that do go to state schools can go to universities, and that's incredibly important that we continue to emphasise that. Um, the second thing is the Sutton Trust study um, that has been brought up, first of all, we need to dispute that as well. The Sutton, the Sutton Trust uh, study is biased because grammar schools only exist in England now in affluent areas because they've been shut down in other areas. That means that house prices in those areas have been driven up by the grammar schools, which means people that live on free school meals can't afford to live anywhere near them and therefore can't attend them. And so the study in that respect is biased and doesn't give accurate results. Finally, Creed's point of world rankings. Um, right. There are two things here. First of all, uh, in terms of Finland, uh, great that their, their secondary school education system uh, is better in world rankings, but um, you just 
When it comes to education, world rankings are like, basically useless. Uh, if you want to compare other sets of world rankings, our universities are better, our economy is also higher. That maybe suggests that our education system isn't as bad as you think. Thank you. Secondly, on your other point, saying that Finland is number five, right? Number one is Hong Kong for mathematics. Maybe should we go back then to rural learning systems? No, thank you. Right? These, these systems are, are comparative and um, um, are, are compared, but they don't always work, and just because they've achieved academic results in those systems doesn't mean that we do want to impose them in the UK, because some of them have horrible effects in the way that children learn. So anyway, let's talk about increased choices of schools. Right, so, comprehensive schools have failed England terribly. Um, according to Michael Willshaw, they've encouraged a system of underachievement. Um, they've, they've encouraged teaching in the middle, where, where children are taught to grade C rather than to grade A. Um, the economies of scale in them also mean that they're always going to get bigger classes, uh, which means that less time is spent per, um, per child. And these are exactly the problems that Craig Miller has already uh, highlighted. It is true that schools require, or the pupils require, dedicated time with them in order to learn. But the problem with comprehensive is that they, they are that they are 2,000 people um, big uh, because of the shortage of teachers. In England, they're always going to get bigger because you're trying to cram more pupils into those classes and thank you. And that means that um, kids are always going to get progressively less time spent with them, which means that the sort of all the problems that he's outlined in the comprehensive system already get worse. No, what we said on our side of the house is nothing that there needs to be a two that there doesn't just need to be a two-tier system. What we've argued on this side of the house is that grammar schools need to be part of an education system. What I would propose as part of that is that there isn't just a two-tier, but there are different types of secondary school set up. Things like academies, free schools, all of those are important parts for different ways that kids learn, and so the teachers can teach in different ways and appeal to different audiences. That's important, but grammar schools should be a part of that. On that point, sir? Yes. So what do you make of the government's new uh, T-level initiative for state schools? Um, I'm not particularly sure. I don't want to discuss government policy. What I, but I, th I think what is important is that we do know, and as, as has been discussed throughout this debate, is that kids do learn in different ways. We do think that different schools are needed for that, and a different way of, of catering for that education, and so that we do think that it is important that different schools exist. We also think that it is important that parents have a choice of what school that they want to send their child to. No, no, nobody knows children, children better than their parents. They know by going around open days, looking at results of the sort of environment that they want their kids to be put into education. We think that it's important for them to have a choice, and that having a one comprehensive school per area is not an effective way to give parents choice. Yes, Dr. You're talking about engaged parents still. Yeah, you're not talking about what goes on with everybody in social economic groups four and five on the whole as a gross generalisation. And that's the okay. problem with right. so, 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 Again, one of the problems that the comprehensive system school feeds is non-engaged parents. <coughs> because when there's only one school per area, they don't have to engage in the education system process. Right, so secondly, the problem of abolition is pretty simple. Right, as it's already been highlighted on our side, grammar schools don't just go away. Um, as you've seen in Northern Ireland, grammar schools were supposed to be were supposed to be banned, and yet they didn't. They let their own fight back because there is a market demand for them. The reason that the Tory party is now bringing them back is because there has been consistent popular demand from their own voters for grammar schools to be reintroduced into England. Right? The reason that they still exist 50 years after being banned by the Labour Party is because there is still market demand from parents for grammar schools. And thank you.
all the problems that we've highlighted get worse under a system where grammar schools, the ones from being grammar schools, become independent schools. They start charging for fees, uh, and that reduces social mobility even more because now no free school pupils can go there unless they provide grants and scholarships. And that's a bigger problem because that narrows the field even more. Yes. I think, though, you're still patching up on another problem. It's, I don't take it as a given that there will be some discrimination at the school choice level. I don't think that the case in the Okay, of so at, at the point that you've already accepted that there will be some discrimination within the school level, we have to make the best of a bad system. And grammar schools do that for all the reasons that just highlighted, because they take uh, poorer kids from those areas and bring them into uh, and give them a better education. Right. Third point, social mobility, a minute and a minute. Right, England got rid of, rid of its grammar schools in the 1970s. Since then, social mobility has grown to an absolute halt. Oxford and Cambridge admissions, when grammar schools were uh, abolished in England, plummeted and took decades to return to about 50%. Uh, in that time, top professions have become dominated uh, by private schools, private and independent schools, um, and this, that is a massive problem for the UK. Social mobility has grown to a halt there and has, been, and has been frozen for about 40 years. In comparison, in Northern Ireland, there has been massive social change for a traditionally oppressed Catholic community. And that has been solely down to its grammar schools. In all the top 11 schools in Northern Ireland, 11 are Catholic grammar schools, and one is a Catholic non-grammar school. That includes St Dominic's in Belfast, which has 26.3% of its students on free school meals. Uh, across the board, 33.2% of Catholics on free school meals uh, go on to leave the five good GCSEs. In comparison, it will be 19.7% of Protestants. 45.2% of Catholics go on to university versus only 40% of Protestants. And 41% of students in Northern Ireland are students from the Catholic community in comparison to 27% Protestant. It is only because of its, of, its, of its Catholic grammar schools and its education system that that community has managed to pull its way through, that there's an increased number of people from Catholic backgrounds in the workforce earning more money and changing Northern Ireland's social fabric. That is the sole thing that is solely down to the grammar schools and proof once again that the grammar schools bring about the social mobility that we need to make our society better. So please oppose this motion. Questions to the floor, so if anyone has a question for the proposition, we'll start it off. Uh, okay, so um, taking Northern Ireland as the example, so you get rid of um, segregation people based on their <coughs> academic abilities. Um, how are you going to split pupils? Because, like, um, take East Belfast as an example, there are I can think of the top of my head saying five schools like within walking distance, like you have to split people somehow and there's still the idea that people want to go to the um, schools that are now grammar schools, they don't want to go to the other schools because they've got a better reputation. So how, what are you going to do because you know, they did get rid of the eleven class and it didn't help at all. Good question. Uh, I think there's a big problem in society. When we say abolish, that means tomorrow. Okay? To abolish something tomorrow is going to cause massive issues. You can't just introduce a massive change like this overnight. It takes a decade or longer. I've, we have said 
We need more teachers. It takes six years to train them. So how am I going to reduce the class size to 20? I am basically 50% more teachers. That's going to take me a minimum of a decade to create. This is not about tomorrow. This is about saying from now, we are going to start the abolition of these schools, if we're talking about practicalities, and going forward, what do we need? Firstly, we need an idea. How are we actually going to do this? What are we replacing okay with, and how do we get okay to great? We need money, we need good teachers. And I point to Robert, he's about to become one. Okay? That's the key, it's not a tomorrow thing. So that attitude of this school is good and this reputation is good, over a decade period won't exist. Okay, and this, then it's basically coming down to the score, basically what's nearest. I know that sounds old, but then choice gets affected. And I can I carry on, do you mind? But then choice gets affected. Okay, but the key thing here is if every school has great teachers, small class sizes, and good results, there shouldn't need to be, and I'm talking about idealism here, there shouldn't need to be that I want to go to that school. If we have small, if we go down the model of a great education system which requires teachers and money, it does. You need to have a decent understanding of maths. 
You need to be able to write a letter when you are basically invoicing somebody. You need to have a decent understanding of English. You need to understand physics when you're basically putting a butt joint together. You need to have a decent understanding of physics. School is for everybody, not just for academics. We talk about school for academics. That, to me, is a complete misnomer in the debate. University, academics, pre-university, everybody. Any questions that they, uh, if anybody thinks that neither side really touched on something that they'd like a bit of clarification on, uh, questions in that respect? Yeah, uh, you must want to Absolutely. Yeah, I was noting down a few things during this debate and having a few observations. The uh, the examples of, uh, of Hong Kong being, being first and fifth respectively in education rankings were given. And um, there is a certain amount, quite a hefty amount that I said that can come down to cultural difference there. Like, I won't go into too much, but you have the example of you know, Hong Kong in general, collectivist ideas in the Asian countries where children are pushed far beyond their means with rural learning, as you mentioned. And um, in Finland, I've done a bit of research on Finland in my spare time, as a deal. And um, the reason that they are. The reason that they have this fantastic uh, education system, which has been lauded, I think all three speakers have talked about this evening, um, was due to and they built, the reason that they can separate that 16 and the reason that they can build more schools in uh, lower income catchment areas is because of the total teachers that they have, and it's because of the uh, respect and integrity of that country to have four teachers, which is absent here. Uh, some people seem to think that like there's this myth that they make as much as uh, doctors and them. Um, Doctors and engineers is not true, they just they argue with, I think they make less than they do here. Um, but the lack of, uh, the increased respect they have for teachers and the more people that want to go into teaching just far higher than it is here. And like, I know myself, someone who's just gone through the process that there is an extreme lack of, uh, not just teachers, but people who want to go into teaching in this country. Um, and there are some things which I can definitely learn. But um, I think the issue that both sides kind of touched upon and brought up and, Going from the cultural difference of those countries, but the real problem is in this country is the lack of uh, teachers that we have to draw on. There's no way that we'll ever be able to create a system where we have schools that um, children in currently uh, in poor um, in catchment areas, which uh, um, which are only available to the the richer people to go to grammar schools. And like, if if in, if in current system we've got rid of grammar schools, it's highly likely that schools will be forced to uh, to charge fees. The problem in this country is how on earth are we going to ameliorate the issue of the lack of teachers and I'd like to hear both sides' thoughts on that. So I think that's the real issue rather than, before addressing any system of uh, tiered school, I think we need to address the issue of the lack of teachers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So you, I'm, I've been asked by you to now ignore everything that you had in that preamble. <laughs> okay, which I was formulating my answer for. Uh, so now just discuss how do we get more people to become teachers. So I'll throw out the solution to you, which is how they're creating more emergency doctors. Okay. Uh, so we've got a mass shortage. We have about 75% of the emergency department training grade doctors filled that we need to have. Okay, so for that means every 100 doctors there should be a 75 out there. Okay, uh, so the way they've done that within the medical profession is effectively by throwing money at the problem. Okay, hey. 
they're giving people an extra five thousand pound golden halo, which is how they create, which is how they, which is how they got people into the army, navy, and air force in terms of medics. They gave them golden halo. So I think the first thing is you need to actually start improving all the players. I know that's not a major point here, but when you want to get a maths grad from Oxbridge teaching at school, who could go and earn five hundred grand a year in the city, how do we get him into a teaching role? on 50 grand a year or less. You have to pay him more. I think everyone can agree to that point. Secondly, we have to change this attitude to learning that everybody has. It's been brought up by the opposition all night. Academic this, not academic that. The bottom line is that we should be creating a culture in which school is for everybody. Where you go to school, you learn, parents engage, and if they don't engage, the parents get called into school. The parents then don't tell the teachers off when the kids aren't doing as well as they should be. So you have to give schools more power to engage with the parental support at home, as well as what is going on in the classroom. So they're my, basically my three main points. Money, engaging parents, and changing the attitude towards learning. We don't think grammar schools get in the way of the need to pay teachers more to encourage them to go into the profession. We don't think that it gets in the way of the, net, the need to te treat teachers with more respect. We don't think the grammar schools get in the way to do that. Um, and so I agree with Dr. Miller that what, one of the problems, the primary problems with um, state education is that like all public sector employees, that for the job that they do, they're often paid under under the marginal under the marginal rate of their labour, and um, and that's because they're funded by a tax system where you have to keep costs down, and um, because often the public person you have to allocate those resources. That's a problem, um, and it might and it's going to be very difficult to address that problem while um, the schools remain in the realm of tax funding. Um, However, the only other system that I would maybe suggest is that Teach First has had phenomenal success uh, in England. Um, it has attracted top graduates into uh, its positions and has put those top graduates into um, schools that are struggling. So programs like that need to be expanded. I think that those, those sort of interventions 
are good and should continue. Um, Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's nothing about what grammar schools or comprehensive schools do that um, discourages uh, teachers going into the profession. Um, so I don't think there is necessarily disagreement on that point. Uh, the only thing that I would say about the comprehensive school uh, versus grammar school debate is, as I've already highlighted in, in my speech, that the issue with comprehensive schools are is that because it's this, this sort of everyone should go to the same school, everyone should be lumped in together, what we do create around the country or around England is we create monolith schools where we try and cram as many pupils into the classroom as possible. And that means that teachers are overworked, that they have to deal with loads of kids that, and they can't spend the individual time necessary to give those kids the, the attention and education they deserve which causes the immense burden of stress, which, which leads many teachers to leave the profession every year. And we know from there that the surveys that teachers fill out every year to their unions that they feel overworked and they feel stressed and they feel that they're not adequately rewarded for the job that they do, nor do they feel that they have the support in place from senior management or the government. And so part of the, part of the reason that we need grammar schools and we need different types of schools uh, in existence, the likes of academies and free schooling, is to alleviate that burden and give uh, and give, more to, uh, give people more choices of the schools that they want to send their kids to and encourage different styles of learning and different styles of teaching so that more people do want to go in um, to the teaching profession. And that's the only difference that I can think of tonight between the proposition and what the opposition want in terms of this debate. Uh, that will be one more question on either side, so one more question for the proposition. <coughs> So my question is about private schools. Would you abolish those too, or would you leave them to create more segregation um, economically between people who either go to state school or pay astronomical tuition fees go to private school? You're going to hear a couple of different answers from this side of the house on this one. Uh, I, will, I will tell you the line. Uh, I don't think that creaming off the richest children, that's all you're doing with private schools, is doing anything for anyone. Who is that actually benefiting, apart from the parents who do that, to go, oh, my kid goes to the private school? Okay. In reality, when you look at the education, I went to, and I hate talking about anecdotal evidence, but I went to Queen as a, like, the, basically what was the top state school in the country when I was doing my exams. Okay, we had more Oxbridge graduates, more medics, more dentists than any other school in the country. Okay, so private schools do not give people an edge. What gives people an edge? They don't. What gives people an edge is attaining good grades. Okay, and we, if you go down a system where you can do that, it might take 10 years to create this rather than doing what Tony Blair did, which was scrap, right? So I wouldn't be scrapping them day one. I would be going down the route of trying to scrap them, but my gut feeling tells me if you create a system where the state-funded schools are doing better than the private schools, the demand for them will cease, and they will end up closing through lack of pupils. And if I can create a system whereby my, the demand for them goes, because my system is so damn good, I'll take them closing in the free market every day. Okay, that was nonsense. Private, school, private schools do give you an edge, 
right? It is, it is an unfortunate factor in British society that going to your private school gives you an unfair advantage in the job market, um, in your future employment, in your earnings, okay? Um, across the public sector, 35% uh, of top civil servants all went to private schools. Um, they are overrepresented in the cabinet, and 35% of top military officers in the British Army um, all went to independent schools in comparison to 17% of people who are educated at private schools in the country. Um, it is not true that going to a private school does not give you an edge. That is not true. We also know that despite only educating 17% uh, of the country, uh, Private schools send, uh, or make up 50% of Oxbridge's uh, admissions every year. These are all problems that private schools give you an edge. Um, and this, this is the thing that, that what we've given you so far, uh, what, what, and the comparison I've given you between Northern Ireland uh, and England, has shown you that over the years it has taken decades for, se for secondary schools to catch up and send 50% of, of their pupils to Oxbridge. It has taken them decades to get back to that level in comparison to the 60s when they were sending, um, when they were sending, when 60% of state school pupils um, made up the uh, Oxbridge admissions and the percentages of people that were in the top, top British professions from uh, independent schools were declining. That changed when grammar schools were abolished. It is untrue. Of what everything that Dr. Bill has just said about private schools not giving you an edge is untrue. And this is exactly why grammar schools need to be brought back. I'm sorry, you've had your response. Um, any questions to the opposition? Mr. Dolly? Uh, well, like... Stand up. So there was a point made about the grades attained by Catholic grammar schools in Northern Ireland. So by retaining grammar schools, what would you have to say to the fact that this will maintain not only a cultural segregation, which will continue by the fact these schools, Protestant or Catholic, will only attract a certain variety of people based on parents' wishes, which creates not only a cultural segregation, but also an academic segregation as well, based on the fact you've shown that Catholic grammar schools perform the best in the country. How would you respond to keeping grammar schools from looking at that? Well, it's not about it, so I will respond. Uh, Mr. Chairman, members of the House, um, the answer is that you open more grammar schools in more areas, right? Like, the, the, the thing is that I, I brought up the comparison to show you how in two different systems um, oppressed uh, minorities and lower, lower uh, socioeconomic groups have done differently in England versus Northern Ireland. The lowest socioeconomic group over the last 50 years in Northern Ireland was the Catholic community and now uh, consistently they are the top performing performance and educated, there are an increasing um, percentage of the workforce and there are also an increasing percentage of the top earners in the country. That's solely down to their education system proving that their education system has worked. In terms of how we get rid of the segregation and the different and the um, of cultural and religious, um, two things will have to happen there. One Northern Irish society as a whole will just have to integrate and that will just take time getting away from the trouble. That is, that, is, that is a fundamental thing, that while, while uh, memories of the Troubles are still fresh, people will not send their kids to the schools outside of their areas. While, 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 while memories of the Troubles remain fresh, that will not happen. That will take a time, that will just simply take time to heal. Secondly though, in terms of addressing the underachievement within the policy working class communities, 
that is an area that you do need more grammar schools going into. You need, you need local catchment areas so that, so that people are going to those local schools and are encouraged to go to those schools. That is how you will rectify that problem and address some of the balances that we uh, address some of the, the uh, unfairness that we've already talked about. Thank you. Basically, what you might have heard is that it's a school connector when you go to Instagram school. Well, <laughs> yes, it is in the situation that Emily should be describing. We're advocating that whether, you know, because that is exactly what you said. You said in Crossing schools, you need, you know, like the board was, need more grammar schools. And we're absolutely about that internet tonight. It's very confident in that we don't need that. We need better schools. We don't need better grammar schools. Um, yeah, we'll go from one last one. But the, this is like an abstention question, so I have to wish out a clarification. It certainly is. And I would like to ask uh, both sides what, what impact they would think that the abolishment of the grammar school system would have on the school's rugby scene. <laughs> <laughs> A very
grammar schools do have this sort of nebulous um, societal impact of um, sustaining rugby. It's incredibly important that if you think having an Ulster rugby team is important, that, um, that having schools like Methody instead of occasionally buying a grammar school, maybe with pupils to it. Um, Any final questions, anyone? Well, I'm still on my feet, I want to do so. Um, it is incredibly important that, that those schools who are traditionally engaged with those forms of sport and continue to feed into the into the Irish rugby system because that means when we have uh, the record go, or England going for a record 19 wins, it falls to Ulsterman, Ian Henderson, and Belfast Boyd Academy and Grammar School to score the final try that stops England winning the Grand Slam in the Six Nations and taking the world record for Tier One wins. So that is final proof that the Grammar School system has saved Irish rugby. Exasperating Rob who, who hates rugby as the, the sport of the, the money classes is uh, much for the, the football, I believe it's called. Uh, <laughs> 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 on that note, we'll go to the votes of the House of Chiefs. So we'll go to first note, which vote. This is on your prior opinion, so if you were in favour of the motion before hearing the arguments this evening, uh, please raise your hands and say aye. And if you were against the motion this evening, before you come to the room, please say nay, everyone. Nay, nay. Really have an opinion before you came into the room this evening. Please raise your hand and say, "Met." Met. And now we move to the vote on speaker building. Uh, so, if you thought the proposition more effectively argued their case this evening, <laughs> uh, please raise your hand and say, "Aye." Argued their case more effectively this evening. Please raise your hands and um, say aye again. I suppose. Uh, uh, well. Oh, okay. Fair. Can't remember. We will assume that she's not a And if you thought both sides spoke equally well, equally rubbish, uh, or just you know, great speeches all around, please raise your hand and say. Woo, yeah. Woo, woo, woo. <laughs> Not precise motion. <laughs> and with 22 in favour of the motion, 11 against, with the abstentions, the motion has been carried. Everyone 
things around that this evening. Uh, we were going to book the parlor bar uh, before because we thought it'd be a big debate. Then Facebook page told us there were 15 people coming, so we better come out to the house bar. So some people have to double up. Here, here. Um, please join us in the pint with the house bar for refreshments and more debate. Uh, lots to be. So, and there is more than that. Come to the bar. Go, go, go.